We are back. Here's truly had a chance to paw through the large collection of new scientists and week magazines that um, stacked up during our hiatus off the air. By the way, our return to the airwaves may not be a completely weekly thing over the next six months. We're going to do the best we can. But it was curious just to pull out some of the various pieces from the two, these particular two magazines because we rely upon them more than any others to produce this program. Item from uh, the technology section of New Scientist I, I thought was curious from the November 26th issue right after the election. We've already talked about this, but is it worth mentioning again that when 62% of Americans get their news from social media at least once in a while, well... It does open this possibility, which many think is was a major contributor to the 2016 election, that people are operating in filter bubbles. They mediate the information that they see in their social media feeds and therefore not exposed to a wide range of ideas as they hopefully had been in the past. It is intriguing to note that in the article they were talking about fake news in November, which has been uh, altered by Donald Trump. Uh, fake news then was describing the articles which kept popping up on social media and other places that were just simply false. Donald Trump is trying to take the position that what the media turns out and he doesn't like is fake news. You may recall that in December, Trump sat down with 40 senior media figures and uh, turned promptly on CNN chief Jeff Sucker and said, I hate your network. Everything, everyone at CNN is a liar and you should be ashamed. It was feared that after inauguration, Trump's war with the media would just escalate, and boy, hasn't that been the case? Donald Trump, of course, tweeted a few weeks back that um, he just found out that Obama had my wires tapped in Trump Tower. It has been noted that this rather incendiary allegation, offered still without any evidence to corroborate it, was immediately denied by President Obama, who released a statement declaring that neither he nor any White House officials ever ordered surveillance on any U.S. citizen, which is actually kind of laughable. But did they order it on Trump? Well, we don't know, to be honest. A lot of folks have pointed out that if this accusation is true, then that means that somebody went through a FISA court to obtain the ability to wiretrap Mr. Trump, and they would only do so if they had some suspicion of quite a bit of skullduggery going on, like perhaps between the Trump campaign and Russia. And in a headline that looks rather hilarious from the <laughs> Leak Magazine's January 13 issue, we have this headline, Trump still skeptical about Russian hacking, which I guess we could take to mean that Donald Trump is skeptical that he did anything wrong or that the Russians did anything wrong or that any hacking took place at all. Remember when Trump during the campaign said that he hoped that Russian hackers would break into Hillary Clinton's emails? It does seem a little bit odd that after they did, he's taking the decision, had nothing to do with me. It was noted on January 13th that Trump's dismissive response to the hacking deepens questions about his ties to Russia. This is the Washington Post looking into it. Is the president-elect's business empire deeply indebted to Russian companies or oligarchs? During the campaign, were Trump aides having secret communication with Putin and his cronies? Well, it seems clear enough now. Yeah, they sure were. I don't have time to go into this in great detail today, but we're going to follow carefully uh, the story, particularly what Roger Stone uh, said and did. It is a matter of record that Roger Stone did boast of advanced knowledge of WikiLeaks' schedule for publishing the hacked emails and, of course, who would be targeted. Of course, he would note that it's a little discouraging that the most definitive statement about um, the relationship of the Trump 
presidential campaign with Russia comes from James Clapper, the former director of national intelligence under President Obama, who has said in a TV interview recently that there was no evidence of any collusion between members of the Trump administration and the Russians. Yes, this is James Clapper, the same guy that went before Congress and assured them that intelligence agencies were not, in fact, gathering any data on citizens, something which has been completely exploded by the revelations of Edward Snowden. We would remind you that before he was forced to resign, National Security Advisor Michael Flynn denied discussing lifting U.S. sanctions on Russia in his phone conversations with Ambassador Kislak. A leaked CIA wiretap of Kislak proved that that was untrue and led to his resignation. United States Attorney General, former Senator Jeff Sessions, when he was being put through confirmation hearings, claimed that he had no contact with Russia. Of course, he does now admit that he did have a private meeting with Kislak in his Senate office. By the way, in an aside, the Attorney General said in a speech a couple days ago that marijuana really, it might perhaps we may want to start looking at marijuana as being just as deadly as opiates. I don't know, perhaps Senator Sessions was deeply moved by that Sonny and Cher video they made back in the late 60s, clarifying for all of us how bad drug abuse of all kinds was. Anyway, it is sort of uh, interesting to go back and review some of these items of the past few months. How about this one? From October 28th, issue of the Week magazine. An extremist ally of President Vladimir Putin has warned Americans to vote for Donald Trump or face nuclear devastation. Vladimir Zhirinovsky, leader of Russia's ultra-nationalist Liberal Democratic Party, said, If they vote for Hillary, it's war. It will be a short movie. There will be Hiroshima's and Nagasaki's everywhere. Zhirinovsky, who has run for president in every election since the fall of the Soviet Union, is known for his incendiary anti-Muslim rhetoric and likes to compare himself to Donald Trump. Recently honored, this is back in October, recently honored by the Kremlin, he is seen as a mouthpiece for Putin to put out radical ideas and see how they are received by ordinary Russians. And on the eve of the election, pretty much everybody in America, I think, was wondering how the GOP could survive Donald Trump. By survive, that would mean surviving his loss of the presidency, which was about to ensue. Well, looks like the GOP looks like the GOP is far from being on life support, although the battles that are going on in it are somewhat entertaining. Matt Taibbi wrote, I don't know how many pieces in Rolling Stone documenting the Trump campaign. And although he was extremely critical and extremely funny in being critical, the punchline to all of it was, isn't this a sad spectacle to watch? But, you know, thank God this isn't going to go anywhere. I mean, how could it? Taibbi and everybody else discounted the possibility that Trump was actually going to win in November. Personally, we don't think he actually did, but that's a story for another day. But, you know, Matt Taibbi is such an amusing writer. I have to just quote a little bit from this before we move on to some science topics. But from the Rolling Stone, August 11th, 2016 issue... Talking about the Republican convention, Matt Taibbi said there were four categories of speakers. First, the Trump family members. Then there were a few Republican politicians who seemed to want to be there voluntarily. People like crazed Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions, who came off like a shaved and slightly angrier version of Yosemite Sam. Ex-candidate Ben Carson emerged from a grain storage chamber somewhere to connect Hillary Clinton to Lucifer and said things about transgender people so outrageous that even Utah Senator Orrin Hatch rushed to their defense. 
The third group consisted of Republican officials who had no choice but to be there, people like Party Chief Rance Priebus and House Majority Leader Paul Ryan, who rarely spoke at Trump's name and seemed pained throughout, aware they might spend eternity giving each other back rubs in hell as punishment for participating in this event. The rest were basically personal friends of Trump who owed him a favor. The nominee seemed to mine the very bottom of his Rolodex for the exercise, to the point where we even heard a testimony from Natalie Gulbis, the world's 492nd ranked professional women's golfer. Anyway, we like Matt Taibbi, but the joke's on him as it is on all of us. And by the way, to return to that theme of fake news momentarily, the Scientific American's February issue uh, had a piece by David Pogue, who writes under the column Technophiles, to quote from Pogue, Pope Francis shocks world, endorses Donald Trump for president. FBI agents suspected in Hillary emails leak found dead of apparent murder-suicide. Rush reveals Michelle's perverted past after she dumps on Trump. Those headlines didn't come from the New York Times or CNN. They were likely written by teenagers in Macedonia. Those fake news stories were written as clickbait designed to draw readers to fake news sites where the Balkan teens made money by selling ads. So I have to ask Mr. Zuckerberg, why did I see those when I was on Facebook? What kind of deal has been cut between our social media giants and Macedonian teenagers constructing clickbait? And in the area where technology meets the rest of the world, we have um, a call now for a robot tax. Writing in QZ.com, Kevin Delaney says that Bill Gates has a modest proposal. The robot that takes your job should pay taxes. It is a surprise to hear such a suggestion from the co-founder of Microsoft, one of the leading players in artificial intelligence technology. But the world's wealthiest man is understandably worried that robots are now displacing human workers faster than replacement jobs are being created. Gates argues that a robot tax would slow down the pace of automation and generate revenue that could pay for retraining schemes and also fund jobs in areas that are unlikely to be automated like education and senior care. Gates did say that right now, the human worker who does, say, $50,000 worth of work in a factory, that income gets taxed. If a robot comes in to do the same thing, you'd think we tax the robot at a similar level. Well, you might think that, but we wouldn't think that. We don't think anybody is going to impose that. Although, the idea certainly does have a bit of merit. Sounding off on the same subject in New Scientist, Sumit Paul Chowdhury said a robot tax is only the beginning. The author notes that previously, when automation hit one sector, employees could decamp to other industries. But the sweep of machine learning means that many sectors are automating simultaneously. So it's not about how many jobs are left after the machines are done taking their pick, but which ones. The evidence so far suggests they might not be very satisfying. For example, we have seen the rise of the gig economy in which algorithms direct low-skill human workers. While this is an employer's dream, it is frequently an insecure, unfulfilling, and sometimes exploitative grind for workers. The article notes that if you want to stop all this, it's the employers you need to convince, not the people making the technology. Employers have huge incentives to replace all two human workers with machines that never stop working and never get paid. All right, let's move on to nicer things, and let's ease into it through uh, another book review from New Scientist magazine. In this case, the book in question was Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, from Alex Sujung Kim Pang. 
The magazine notes that it turns out, from reading to daydreaming, rest is something we understand as a necessarily conscious experience, a deliberate disengagement from the rhythms of life obligations. But for Alex Pang, rest looks different. In the book, his pen to a balanced life, he argues that work and rest are not opposing forces, but an essential reciprocal partnership. With an emphasis on rest's benefits for the creative mind, Pang proposes that it has a place in our lives as a learned skill, one to hone and tend to, just as we would practice a musical instrument or train for a race. Citing everyone from Charles Darwin to Steve Jobs, he suggests that our approach should be as structured as for other tasks. On the face of it, this idea seems so commonsensical that uh, it, just, it just has to be right. We really need to devote some time to developing our skills at resting, resting creatively. Mr. McMillan, for his part, believes that he is an expert on this. And if you need some advice, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. He promises a prompt response if he's, if he's not resting. All right, science is making some great strides in learning how it is that we have microbes in us and on us and how we interact with them and how important that is to health and just how we live in general. I'd like to cite two articles here, generally on this topic, both from New Scientist. From the January 14th, 2017 issue, the cover story was about germ warfare, quote-unquote, asking the question of how clean do you need to be? And this article opens rather irresistibly with one of our favorite lines from Joan Rivers, which was, I hate housework. You make the beds, you wash the dishes, and then six months later, you have to start all over again. Author Penny Satchett said, if only, noting I can't stand a dirty kitchen sink, a grubby bathroom, or cobwebs hanging from the ceiling, so I spend precious hours every day cathartically cleaning. But my doubt set in 18 months ago when I moved in with my boyfriend. It didn't take us long to discover that we're in opposite corners when it comes to housework. He's dirty, but tidy, while I'm clean, but messy. He suddenly has to deal with my clutter spread all over his dining table and sofa, while I nursed a growing preoccupation with the art of disinfection. We have learned to live with each other, and my new position of compromise has led me to question some of my preconceptions. She notes a little later that we're bombarded with seemingly contradictory information about being clean. Good hygiene, of course, helps ward off countless infections and illnesses. That's clear enough. But then there are bacteria that turn out to be good for us. There's whispers out there that some ingredients in our cleaning products might be hurting us. And the hypothesis that too much hygiene is behind rising rates of allergies and other disorders is worth a look. The article refers to the 1989 study by David Strachan, then an epidemiologist at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, who first proposed his hygiene hypothesis. He suggested that modern lifestyles with their lack of unhygienic exposure means that we catch fewer infections in early childhood and that this predisposes us to developing allergies. Some of the evidence for this is fascinating. Children who grow up on farms seem to be healthier, as are children whose parents wash dishes by hand rather than by using a dishwasher. And for those who have a dog. The author notes that as a lover of cleanliness, the study that really turns my stomach the most is a 2014 paper that found that children are less likely to develop precursors to asthma if in their first year they're exposed to particles from cats, mice, and cockroaches. 
She she goes on to note that this emerging understanding of what's known as our microbiome suggests that rather there being a clear distinction between clean and dirty, we have a complicated relationship with bacteria. Being exposed to some kinds is good for us, to others not. Figuring out which is which is the hard part. One thing is becoming clear, says the article, it's diversity that counts. A study in Germany in 2015 of nearly 400 infants took a look at their exposure to caregivers' personal and home cleanliness. This apparently had no effect on whether they would or would not develop asthma or allergies. What did make a difference? Their exposure to bacteria. Several studies showed that healthier people tend to host a wider range of microbes. There's also now there's also now some evidence for why living on a farm is so good at reducing allergies. The bacterial components in farm dust suppress inflammatory immune responses. This seems to indicate that the hygiene hypothesis in need is in need of a revision. It's not infections so much as exposure to a wide variety of bacteria that help control the development of our immune systems. Interesting. Peace notes that when we're exposed to these beneficial microbes is also crucial. The most important time seems to be early childhood. It is probably very important to take children starting at a young age outdoors and let them play on the ground, according to one authority. If you're old enough to be reading these words, the author said, I have some bad news. By the time we're adults, our microbiome may be largely set. According to current thinking, the cutoff is as early as age three. Anyway, how much cleaning should you do in your house? The article recommends concentration on doorknobs, light switches, and the bathroom. Anything we touch a lot. The piece notes the most important advice is to wash your hands after cooking, before eating, and, not surprisingly, after using the toilet. Something else that might uh, improve health around the house is to leave it more often. (laughs) It seems that people are not spending enough time outdoors. When you do, you're healthier. Duh. Preliminary findings hint that spending more time doing social sports and other outdoor activities can help restore a healthy, diverse microbiome. Exposure to soil may be the key. They note that we all end up ingesting between 50 and 60 milligrams of soil every day. Gardeners get twice that amount. Buried in the article is the note that, ironically, many of the pollutants in our home seem to come from ingredients to make the product smell clean and fresh. It's noted that when fragrance compounds like limonene and other terpenes get into the air, they can react with ozone to generate compounds like formaldehyde, which, in fact, is carcinogenic. Some people have suggested we use good old-fashioned uh, cleaning products like vinegar, bicarbonate of soda, and lemons. Air purifiers are no help. It's noted they remove large particles of allergens like dust and pet hair rather than small fragrance chemicals. Peace also notes if you can't bear knocking off the cleaning, one solution might be the humble houseplant. It's been known for more than a decade, thanks to NASA research into crewed spaceflight, that plants absorb organic chemicals like benzene and formaldehyde from the air. So yes, the punchline is we need more information on exactly what's going on to make us healthy in terms of what what in our environment is so-called clean or not clean. And And in another very interesting article... From New Scientist, we have a piece by Jessica Hamzalu titled Microbes on the Market, which I think I'll just quote from. For the last decade, we've been promised that one day we'd be able to mine and modify our microbiome, the bacteria that live in and on our bodies, to tackle disease and stay healthy. So far, a little in the way of practical applications has emerged. 
But this year is different, as attendees at the Human Microbiome Congress in San Diego heard. The key theme animating the conference? The explosion of drugs targeting the microbiome. At least 70 startups and institutes are now competing to get first drugs to market. And pharmaceutical companies are heavily represented, including Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pfizer, and Merck. The article notes that as these potential drugs make their way through clinical trials, early results are promising, but they won't be on the market for three to five years. But wouldn't you know it, several of these drugs, now in various stages of human trials, are already available, or soon will be, thanks to that regulatory loophole that allows them to be sold as cosmetics or food supplements, as long as they make no medical claims. The people buying them are discovering that they can have dramatic health effects, but some researchers are worried. With all the hype about the wonders of microbiome-based medicines, the market is ripe for the picking, says Eugene Chang of the University of Chicago in Illinois. Are these products the real deal? We've known on this program for a long time that uh, so-called probiotics are really uh, a lot of hype. It's an idea that is utterly scientifically sound in principle, but in practice, well, we're just not there yet. The article explains how there's a lot of work going into things you can eat that I presume will have uh, microbes in them that will affect your metabolism. It's been noted that manipulating the bacteria that cover our skin can have powerful effects. In the course of testing its bacterial face spray for acne, San Francisco startup AO Biome discovered that the spray also brought down volunteers' blood pressure. By the way, that product, AO Biome's <laughs> what's called Mother Dirt bacterial misspray, is available to buy if you live in the United States. And we've noted on this program that one thing that's proved to be spectacularly successful in treating people with uh, problematic gut infections are fecal transplants as opposed to things like, you know, uh, probiotics and prebiotics, which are backed by, you know, very little evidence, we know fecal transplants work. But notes the article, squirting someone else's feces inside you isn't a decision to be taken lightly. In the U.S., this is only approved for treatment of Clostridium difficile. This is only approved for the treatment of Clostridium difficile, an hospital-acquired infection that can strike after antibiotics strip beneficial bacteria from the gut. A fecal transplant from a healthy donor is thought to restore the natural balance, reflecting in a 90% cure rate. However, notes the article, it is a blunderbuss approach. Feces can team with millions of bacterial strains as well as viruses and fungi. Some of these may be responsible for surprising and sometimes unpleasant consequences of fecal transplants, including obesity. This explains why many of the drugs in these current trials are attempts to create fecal transplants without, well, the feces. The key to turning this into standardized and predictable treatment is finding and isolating the specific, quote, healthy, unquote, bacteria that should repopulate the gut. That, in a nutshell, is the problem, and it is a difficult problem to solve. Researchers at, the, researchers at the University of Guelph in Ontario have developed a combination of 40 bacterial strains that can be taken as an oral capsule. They note, we don't rely on a donor at all. This, ladies and gentlemen, is some exciting stuff. And we fully expect that despite some of the obstacles that face researchers, there's going to be tremendous breakthroughs in the not-too-distant future. All right, let's close out with one piece from New Scientist that leaves me just stunned at how little I knew about any of this. This being the fact that millions of years ago, birds were ruling the skies. 
Birds started out ruling the skies while the dinosaurs were still walking the earth. In fact, it is widely recognized that dinosaurs are living still on earth in the form of birds. Birds are dinosaurs. Although a piece in the March 4th New Scientist titled Flipping the Birds adds a new dimension here. Describes how back in the 1970s, some researchers down in Argentina stumbled upon some fossil bones. They were puzzled at first. They were far too small to be from dinosaurs. But when they flew them to London, experts recognized that they were, in fact, the remains of ancient birds. But on closer examination, they discovered that these fossil shoulders and feet of these birds had grown quite differently to those of modern birds. The ball and socket joint in the shoulder was reversed. Thus, we were looking at a whole new avian category, not just a new species. In a short paper published in 1981, scientist Cyril Walker named the fossils Enantiornimus lealis, Leal's opposite bird. We now know this was not an evolutionary oddity. Millions of years ago, these skies were full of such creatures. Then, 65 million years ago, an asteroid hit the Earth, and opposite birds were relegated to the history books, along with the vast majority of dinosaurs. As noted, the only survivors were modern birds. The magazine notes, therein lies the mystery. How did modern birds escape total annihilation? Despite looking remarkably similar to their opposite cousins, they must have had some mysterious features that allowed them to survive the devastating impact. Now, it turns out, and I just had no idea about this, but it turns out that opposite birds split from modern birds between 150 and 130 million years ago in the fossil record. And for more than 60 million years, both types of flying beasts shared the skies. Opposite birds were just as diverse and numerous as the ancestors of modern birds. At one time, they were even more diverse. By this point, they found 50 to 60 species of them on every continent except Antarctica. So, why did none survive that asteroid collision of 65 million years ago? Well, the most noticeable difference between the two groups were their size and habitats. Opposite birds were smaller. They lived in forests. But that shouldn't have made the difference. Beaks were not the key difference. By the time the asteroid hit, both types of birds had many species that had evolved into toothless beaks. Speculated that perhaps opposite birds were not seed eaters, and certainly after the asteroid collision, that a lot of species must have relied on seeds for many years or decades, but that's just speculation. We're pretty sure that unlike modern birds, opposite birds pretty much laid their eggs, and then when the chicks hatched, they were on their own. There is, by the way, one type of modern bird that, that does this, the megapodes of Australia, described as ground-dwelling bush turkeys. They lay their eggs, the chicks dig their way out of the ground, and like young turtles, they're now fending for themselves. It is a curious mystery, and we wonder if it'll ever be solved, but we hope it is, and we hope that when it is, we'll be able to tell you about it. But, unfortunately, we are out of time. This program was produced by Edwin Vermillion. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we expect to be with you again next week.